0: History was made yesterday. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, became the 46th president of the United States in uh, what uh, was a much scaled-down ceremony, obviously, because of COVID and certainly for security reasons because of what happened two weeks before on that very platform at the Capitol building. Uh, Many people, including some harsh critics of the Democratic Party, including Chris Wallace from Fox News, uh, have uh, characterized Biden's speech as maybe one of the best inaugural speeches they've heard in their lifetime pretty heady stuff. Uh, in that speech, Biden, Biden pledged that uh, during this uh, term in, uh, as president, he is actually going to be honest with the country as it continues to confront its difficulties. There is truth and there are lies. Lies told for power and for profit. And each of us has a duty and a responsibility as citizens, as Americans, and especially as leaders. Leaders who have pledged to honor our constitution and protect our nation, to defend the truth and defeat the lies. Uh, Much different tone, much different attitude, much different message than we heard four years ago. So how is this going to impact Canada-U.S. relations? Uh, To that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Interesting. Uh, through that whole speech, uh, Joe Biden never mentioned Donald Trump by name, but he certainly talked about him, didn't he? Uh, with the clip we just ran here, but uh, there are truth and there are lies. the 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 the, the, the essence of Trump was there, and and uh, I thought Biden did a wonderful job of, of trying to reset uh, the mindset of the American people. And he didn't say you know what the the, the past guy did was bad. He's just saying there was bad, and now we're going to make it better.
1: Yeah, I think he did a great job too, and I think. He- you're right, like his speech was very um, forward looking, right? Like as much as he did, I mean, I think he had to, he had to acknowledge that he's taking this office at a most, you know, interesting and complex time. And in many ways, you know, like he's, he's dealing with things that the previous president did not deal with. And in some ways he's dealing with things that the previous president has frankly made worse. And so he knows he's inheriting that. And so I think he kind of had to acknowledge that tone and then have people, you know, look forward and and start thinking about how we can make things better. And so I th- I think he hit the the right notes, the right tone, perfectly.
0: I, I know that speechwriters. I mean, inaugural speeches are supposed to be positive. That's why we we're so shocked four years ago with Trump's uh, speech, uh, but. It, this was not only a positive vision i thought it was a much more realistic vision too it was not full of platitudes i, mean, I know people that were going to listen to that yesterday doctor and say well you know what's the takeaway is they're going to be uh, asking out what you can do for your country that sort of thing uh mm-hmm. the takeaway for me was uh and, and i think it's the keynote of the whole st- address was democracy has won uh and and there was the fact that they even had to make that statement i think is is kind of scary but it's it's kind of like raising the hand and say we've won we're back and this is the way we're going to run the country again
1: exactly i think he like the the speech was to me very um you know kind of it showed who he is it was very much a joe biden kind of speech it reminded me a lot actually of the speech that he gave uh, the day that that he got enough electoral college votes and mm-hmm. the vote was con- confirmed that it was him. Like, it, there was, it seems to me there was a lot of parallels between those two speeches. And you're right. Like, he's talking about the institutions. He's talking about, you know, much, things much bigger than himself and his own campaign and his own goals. You know, like, he wasn't talking about specific policies, you know, not that you would in an inaugural speech. But I think he really was talking about, like, the whole the democratic system system. Um, what Americans have have believed in, you know, and and making sure that those things are going to be working the right way again. And I think there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of humility in him, right? Like, he's not a platitude guy. He's just not going to do that kind of stuff. He's he's just going to, you know, stand there or sit there and talk in a way that is totally honest and, and authentic for him
0: he talked about reaching out to other countries and that's why i want to talk about the canada u.s relations and he used a phrase that I, i've heard before uh along the campaign trail but I'm, I'm glad he included it yesterday because i think it's 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 one of the things that helps define uh, joe biden and the way he's going to run uh the, the oval office uh and i'm sure you're aware of this one too he says we will win our friends back not by the example of our power but by the power of our example uh which, which really i think characterizes the attitude that he's taking
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was definitely some notes yesterday about uh, America's position in the world and being able to not just reclaim, as you say, you know, their position as a global power, but also as a global partner and getting back to those relationships that they depend on too. Right? Like, and you know, there's a lot that's happened in trade over the past few years, not mm-hmm. just you know the unpredictability of Trump, but there's been a lot of a lot of movement in other parts of the world, and you know, his 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 indication that he's going to be you know making progress on those relationships he's back into the paris agreement he's like those things are are extremely important to him i think and he's situating himself apart from the kind of protectionism that we saw under president trump to a much more kind of partner you know much much more reaching out to people
0: yeah and two of those organizations that i was thinking of as i heard him speak yesterday doctor were were, were, first of all the g7 and uh, talking about trade but also nato uh which uh, donald trump tried to do, you know, Vladimir Putin's bidding and tear NATO apart. Uh, and, and he bruised it. He didn't tear it apart. But uh, Joe Biden, uh, of course, even before he was vice president for eight years under the Obama administration, uh, was in the Senate for many years, the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, he knows the importance of, of those relationships, doesn't he?
1: Oh, exactly. I mean, like, he's coming to this with so much experience and having created so many relationships himself in the past, you know, as a senator, as vice president. And he's, he's definitely come... You know, in these experiences, understanding a lot about the importance of multilateralism and the importance of those agreements in the long term, and the sense that that Trump was, you know, as you say, you know, willing to really take a crack at NATO as much as he could, making this argument that America is somehow being suckered by other countries, including Canada. So I think that kind of, you know, just frankly nonsense is just, you know, we're, we're just going to be able to leave that behind us now. And whether people agree with every decision Biden, Biden makes or not, and I mean, we won't, right? We all, we already, sure. you know, there's already one that's causing a bit of a of a yeah. panic for some of us in canada but i mean that's okay right <laughs> like it like his decisions i think will be based on you know we'll be able to see the logic behind those and the kind of unpredictability that we saw with trump is, is over now
0: well it's interesting foreign affairs minister mark are talked about this and you're referring of course to the XL pipeline and the fact that he's rescinded the uh, the permission for that which by the way shouldn't be as a surprise he's talked about that for the last year and a half of course uh, yeah. so you know Duh. I know Jason Kennedy's not correct, okay, but but Garneau said we're not going to let that decision define our relationship, which I thought was an interesting take on that.
1: Yeah, and I, a number of people, I was watching some of the commentary last night, and a lot of people made that point, like, look, we knew this was coming. And now, like, the, the fact that he's kind of gotten that out of the way on day one, literally, means that we can, you know, we can accept that. It's not going to define the relationship. There's not going to be a back and forth between... Uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau on whether we can work something out. Right, like this is that piece is over. We can focus on other pieces. That doesn't mean you know it's all easy, but it does mean that in terms of the relationship, obviously it's a give and take. It's about a lot more than one thing, and so you know this. I think it kind of clears the air to a certain extent, and I and I I think that the two are going to have a call tomorrow
0: yeah they are the, uh, the press secretary mentioned that uh saka mentioned that just last night that uh, the first call was going to be to uh, the prime minister uh and let's talk about that relationship uh they know each other of course from from biden's time as uh, first of all foreign relations but certainly as vice president uh how important is it to have a, a personal relationship in situations like that uh, i mean like to, to suggest that uh, that justin trudeau and, uh, and donald trump had an acrimonious relationship i think would be a massive understatement uh they didn't like each other at all uh, and, and in only got worse as, as time went on uh i, I don't expect uh president biden and, and the prime minister to have the same level of relationship that uh, that trudeau seemed to have with barack obama uh but i, I think it's going to be of that ilk don't you think they know each other they seem to like each other and i think they're like-minded on a lot of things
1: yeah i mean i think the most important thing is is civility and respect like same as any other relationship i right? like i mean if, they, if they're not each other's best friends That's fine. right? Like the point is that we want to be able to kind of have some sense that the two are interacting in a way that is respectful and positive and that they're solutions oriented. They're seeing ways that the two countries can work together and also how they can partner in much more broad terms so that there's global partnerships facilitated by this relationship as well. Now, I agree with you. I think, you know, Trudeau and Obama seem to have just a fantastic kind of closeness that is probably not, you know, typical. And we can think of other presidents and prime ministers, like when, um, you know, Reagan and Mulroney, they just absolutely yeah. hit it off. Yeah. There were some others that totally hated each other. And then probably m- lots of shades of gray between there, where there's some, as long as there's a functional working relationship, I think we're basically fine. But I think the other thing, too, is that Trump is, has proven that he will attack absolutely anybody. Mm-hmm. And you can get along with him in the morning, and then he's tweeting these insults about you in the afternoon. So how do you, how do you roll with that, right? And so it's like, again, going back to that unpredictability point.
0: Yeah, well, and I, I guess the classic example of that was the G seven meeting in Quebec a couple of years ago when uh, Trump left early, of course, because he was going to go meet with Kim Jong on and- uh... And, and basically said everything's fine and hunky-dory we're all uh, loving each other and and by the way we're gonna get that trade deal worked out and they asked the prime minister but an hour later he says we're nowhere close i mean he was being yeah. honest and candid about it and trump didn't want that uh... and that really i i think was probably the final straw in that re- relationship but you you look at you know on, on the scorecard here uh... key issues as you say like international relations nato g-7 uh... the environmental issues i mean there there's a lot of 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 parallels here that these two are going to get along with and 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 basically, I, I think you're going to see a, a much stronger North American alliance out of a lot of those key issues now.
1: Oh, I think so, too. And I think there's already a clear sense of of uh, shared values between the two. And also, I mean, their relationship is all obviously the focal point. It's the more important one. It's, it's the, the one that we're all going to be watching very closely. But also, there are others, right? Like the two have cabinets, and there will be lots of exchanges there among you know among, among co- counterparts. And the relationship between Kamala Harris and Christian Freeland will also be a very interesting one to watch. And we've already seen, you know, the right, you know, the right notes go back and forth there. So I think it's all positivity at this point, right? Like we've got all kinds of reasons to, to be looking forward and happy. Of course, at some point, you know, there'll be bumps in the road and things like that. But that's, you know, that's absolutely normal.
0: Well, and, and some of the things, the pipeline notwithstanding, but I mean, let's f- remember it and put that in context. Uh, the Obama administration didn't give permission for that pipeline, and, and that didn't seem to have a negative impact on the relationship uh, between the two countries, uh, notwithstanding how Alberta felt about that. Uh, and, and there are other things that can be worked out, I suppose, when it comes to this. And, and maybe one of the first ones, of course, is going to be, uh, you know, the relationship with the Chinese government, with uh, Menzhenung, and, and and whether or not Biden's going to carry on with that as well. So there's a lot to talk about in a very short period of time I guess when they get together tomorrow.
1: Oh absolutely and I think you're absolutely right like the, those issues are going to become you know there's going to be a range a broad range of issues that are going to define that relationship and so yeah I mean the Keystone issue didn't didn't in any way wreck the relationship between Obama and Trudeau and it won't wreck this now, this one now either it's just you know it's one thing but I think when you've got rational people and you've got reasonably managed expectations and there's you know of course we're not going to see eye to eye on everything but be having that kind of solutions oriented attitude that's based in shared values will get you pretty
0: far. But as we talked to, to the, the new folks in the administration, and they had their first press conference, as you mentioned, uh, Dr., last night, uh, tone matters, doesn't it? Uh, and and as as the, the press secretary, the new press secretary from the White House mentioned yesterday, tone starts at the top. And, and certainly we saw that with Trump. Uh, you know, the first press conference said that sean spicer had basically you know chiding the press because they didn't agree with him that that was the biggest ever inaugural crowd in the in the history of the united states things of that nature uh and biden sets that tone and as you mentioned it, 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 the administration and the people he puts in key positions are usually a reflection of, of how they are, are going to approach this and their style and their technique and their personality and and so we're going to certainly see a different tone aren't we
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, like, already we, there was people tweeting about this, like, Biden could be heard telling his staff, like, if anyone is heard disrespecting anyone, you are gone. Like, that is not how we're going to run things. And so you're absolutely right. Like, like the same as any other corporation or organization, um, tone does start at the top. It's all about, you know, what, what, pe- what is expected of you by leadership. It's all about leadership. And I think, you know, he's obviously really set out, what he means by that and i mean there were people too who were around trump he had such a high rate of turnover it seemed like if somebody you know if, if anybody kind of gave him a sense of hey look maybe you want to consider this which is absolutely the job of someone in your cabinet or somebody an advisor close to the president they were gone and so you know there was just a revolving door around him and so even the stability of of you know having some people fulfill these roles for a long time and getting a sense that we, that there's trust that can be built. And, you know, that's going to be a huge factor as well.
0: Yeah, that uh, I saw that segment last night as he swore in with the White House staff. And by that, we're talking about the people that work every day, like on office staff. And it was done by mm-hmm. teleconference, of course. There were about a 1,000 of, them, I think, in on the call. And he said that right before he, they gave them the oath. He said, "If I you know, if I catch you doing this, you're fired. All the, that's all there is to it, and the, which is very un-Biden-like, but I think he was basically saying, that, you know, that's the line right there. You, you're going to reflect the kind of attitude I have, or you're not going to work here.
1: Exactly, and I think he's probably thinking as well, you know, for for all of, the, all of us listening to him, he's hoping that this attitude is reflected in our professional environments as well, and, you know, this is just not going to be tolerated. And I think, you know, in some ways people... The worry is, is not just that, that you know, there's, there's a lack of civility around a president like Trump. It's not just that. It's How much does that carry over to the rest of society? And the, there's you know, huge research to be done on, on those kinds of questions. But I think you know, Biden's not just thinking about around himself in his own office. He's also thinking about, about Americans writ large and just, you know, we cannot tolerate and normalize the sense of, of being disrespectful to one another.
0: Well, there's one quick point. I know we're just about out of time. I, one of the other contentious points that a lot of people have brought up uh, on this side of the border anyway, Doctor, uh, was Biden's commitment to buy American when it comes to the rejuvenation and, and restarting, building it better, so to speak. Uh, but I wanted to remind people that uh, that was the same policy that the Obama administration adopted uh, during their first term as well. And Canada seemed to be able to work around that. I mean, it, as you say, they sat down and, and talked about it because there's a, an awful lot of Canadian companies, of course, that rely on those U.S. contracts. Uh, we have one of them in Hamilton here, Walter steel and there's so many others that are doing huge mega projects down south of the border uh and and i'm, I'm not ready to simply say well that's not going to happen anymore because it, like i say the same scenario developed and they found a way to make it work
1: oh exactly and i think we're going to see you know attempts like that again and, and i think too like it's not going to be about necessarily any specific meeting or any specific time this is going to be an ongoing dialogue between the two countries and between you know the various counterpoints in the two systems and I think, you know, there's already conversations around, like, how about buy North America instead of buy, mm-hmm. buy America and, you know, move the pieces a little bit so that we can we can do a little bit more to help each other. I think, you know, that that's, that conversation w- is happening and, you know, will kind of kick off officially tomorrow.
0: be fascinating to watch over the next little while, especially as they lay the groundwork for this. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate your input. Thanks for having me. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, uh, with uh, Dalhousie University, talking about Canada-U.S. relationships. And it's going to be a different kind of relationship now under uh, President Biden. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Alberta Premier Jason Kennedy says that uh, President Biden has failed to show respect for Canada by canceling the Keystone XL pipeline expansion project. This is what the Premier had to say. I call upon Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government to ask the new administration to sit down And to discuss this, to discuss this decision in the context of a way forward between Canada and the United States on environmental policy, climate policy, policy, and energy security. Well, to suggest that uh, Premier Kenney was upset, I guess, would be a massive understatement. Uh, Let's uh, get some perspective on this. Ian Lee, of course, from the Spartan School of Business at Carleton University joins us on the program to talk about this. Morning, Ian. How are you doing today? Morning, Bill. Doing just fine, thanks. I, I need you some clarity here. Uh, according to Premier Kennedy, this is the end of the world as we know it. Uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau said, look, it, we can't. We saw this coming. We're not going to let it define our relationship. Uh, where are we on this, somewhere in the middle?
2: Um, I, I'm sympathetic to Kenny because he feels double-crossed. Um, they went through all the legal hoops of over 10 years for well, the Keystone, has been going through the process literally for ten years, and they've produced endless documentation. Moreover, um, and this has been well documented, the uh, the GHG emissions uh, from oil uh, going through the Keystone or that would have been going through the Keystone has been reduced by thirty percent since the mm-hmm. beginning of the uh, project, since they first started it. So he's saying, "Look, we did everything you asked for and a lot more, and now you're still canceling it." Having said that. Biden campaigned on this repeatedly.
0: We've known for over a year, haven't we?
2: We have. And and there, I think there's a belief, I think this is a fair statement I'm going to make, it has nothing to do with the political party position, that there's a belief by many, I'm one of them, that if a, a person, a, a, the leader of a party, any party, campaigns on something, uh, and it's a fundamental issue, meaning you've said it over and over during your campaign, if elected, what's one of the first things I'm going to do? Then we the people, if we elect that party... Have spoken, and that becomes definitive. Even if we think it's a dumb idea, even if professors can show that it really is a dumb idea because it's not going to change anything, which I will argue to you shortly, uh, it doesn't matter. It was sanctified, the decision was sanctified and legitimized by whom? The American people in electing President Joe Biden as the president elect and now the president. So, you know, we can look at it, and I can tell you it's a it's silly what they did. It's symbolic. I say it's silly because uh, I looked up the U.S. pipeline regulator in the United States. It's part of the Department of Transportation, reporting now to President Biden, and they have excellent statistics there. The U.S. have over 2.5 million miles active million miles of oil and gas pipelines all over the United States, pumping oil and gas and to everywhere. And he didn't cancel one yard let alone one mile, of any of those pipelines. But that's his prerogative. That's what he ran on. Mm -hmm. So my point is this idea that this is going to save the climate, which is what people are advocating, and I've read some op-eds saying this is the first step on saving the climate. No, it's not. The underlying demand for oil and gas in the United States, again, according to the U.S. Energy Department, they've got excellent statistics, 80% of the totality of all energy in the U.S., comes from oil and gas. Not coal, not nuclear, not alternatives. By the way, very similar to Canada. Very, very similar. We're 77%. And so the point is, the demand for oil is there because of the structure of the economy in the States, the existing infrastructure of pipelines, oil and gas, and so forth. And that's not going to change. So what's going to happen is the oil will be shipped by rail. So then I looked up because I I knew I wanted to talk to you about this, I looked up the national regulator, our Canada national regulator, and apparently our railroads have a maximum capacity of about 2.5 million barrels a day. We're not shipping anywhere near that, but that's their capacity. Well, the Keystone was going to ship about 850,000 barrels a day. In other words, about a third of the capacity of our railroads was going to go through the Keystone. So that oil... Which the Americans need and want will still move to the states and it will move on rail. Now, you can say, well, then what's the problem with uh, Premier Kenny? What is, what's his problem? Well, it's more expensive and they will make less money. It'll fall on the shoulders of the people in Alberta. The co- it's more costly. Um, and it is more, slightly more dangerous. It's not. I'm not I want to paint a picture that's extremely dangerous. But on the re- website of both the Canadian and American regulators, they state flat out, no ambiguity, with no caveats. They say shipping hazardous uh, liquid materials, oil and gas by pipeline, is the safest. Not. Possibly, or maybe, or maybe not. They said it is simply the safest way to ship oil. And so, okay, for political reasons, the environmental groups were very successful at demonizing oil coming out of the oil sands, and so they convinced Biden to, uh, because of his progressive base in the Democratic Party, which is not the majority of the party. It's a, it's a minority of the party, and I'm talking um, uh, Senator Warren and Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. and uh, Representative um, uh, AOC, Alexandria Cortez, yeah. in the House. And they are very adamant, they're very anti-pipeline. So they convinced uh, uh, Biden. He said, OK, I'm going to campaign on that. He did. And uh, so now what will happen is that oil will still go to the United States. It's just going to go on a more costly, slightly less safe method called railroads and trucks
0: i got about a minute left here, and this is such a complex issue, and I know that the Prime Minister and the uh, President are going to be speaking tomorrow, I yeah. guess, by phone, uh, and the, this has got to come up in the issue. Uh, rail is is an option. Somebody asked me earlier this morning about what about the uh, the Trans-Pacific, you know, which isn't even finished yet, of course. That's right. uh, but that's going to be costly, too. I mean, even if they do that, they're going to have to ship it all the way down to uh, somewhere down in the States, and, and that's, that's, an, that's costly. It's going to take more time. Uh, rail seems to be the only viable option at this stage. That's
2: right. And I've looked up the cost, I don't have my, because I don't memorize them, I'm getting older and I forget these things, but I did have <laughs> the cost figures a little while ago and I looked them up, and there's no question, uh, rail is not, uh, you know, 10 cents more, it's it's very significantly more costly per barrel, but the margins are there, the profit margins, meaning the price of oil minus your cost to extract it and to ship it, still make it profitable to go by rail. It's not the ideal way to get there. I mean, I, I have said somewhat flippantly or jokingly, is just put it on the railroad, put it just across the. U.S. border, the Canadian-U.S. border, and then there's pipelines there. I've looked at the pipeline map of mm-hmm. the U.S. from the U.S. Energy Regulator, and uh, they have pipelines all over the place. So just ship it just across the border, almost like land lease. The Americans would drag the planes up to the Canadian border yeah. in the Second World War, and then Canadians <laughs> would drag them across 50 feet onto the Canadian side and put them on trucks. <laughs> well, same idea, you know, you put the oil, uh, you, you pipe it down to about a mile from the a kilometer from the Canadian border pump it into railroads or trucks, drive it across to the U.S. side and stick it into the pipeline again. I mean, I'm being a little bit flippant, but I wouldn't be surprised if something like that emerged as, a, as, a, as an alternative, uh, because the oil will get there if there's a demand. That, exactly. They think that if you ban a pipeline, the demand that we have to heat our homes, drive our cars is going to vanish. It will not.
0: Uh, I, I know, but I'm glad you brought that up. It just reminded me of the, uh, anybody who's seen the uh, the Churchill movie, uh, The Darkest Hour, yes. uh, and, and and they talked about, it. They, they showed one of those scenes, FDR on the phone to Churchill, uh, suggesting, you know, this before the U.S. got in the war, and they said, you know, you can drag them across, and people laughed, but that's what happened that's exactly uh, until the U.S. actually got into the war after Pearl Harbor. It was, it was so bizarre, right. so, so it may be plain. the same thing, Ian. Millions of planes and put them right on the bottom. Bar- millions and
2: drag them across.
0: <laughs> yeah, with horses. Yeah, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for the historical perspective on this, too, Ian. Great talking with you again. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Hey, Thank you, Ian Lee from the Smart School of Business at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.